0: Well, hey, listen, if you've got a Bible today, let's go to Acts chapter 9. We're going to be in Acts chapter 9. We're going to be in a, a number of different places, but as you're turning there, let me share some some sad news with you, church family, this morning. I found out about 11 o'clock last night that one of our church members, Mr. Michael Duncan, went home to be with the Lord yesterday uh, very unexpectedly, and uh you may remember uh, Michael and his wife Katrina. They've been greeters at our doors oftentimes. And uh, Michael's a wonderful man that's uh, in a wheelchair that usually sits over here to my left. And so pray for Katrina and the family. Katrina, just ask if you would. If you want to message her, that's fine. But just if you would not put anything out publicly on social media. And I appreciate you doing that. Um, that wasn't COVID-related, by the way. I know everybody, that's the go-to question right now, obviously, because that's what's on all of our minds. That wasn't COVID-related. We, we have had some losses in our community this week that are COVID-related. Josh Eaton, who's a member of our church, his brother uh, passed away this past Friday, and so pray for Josh and his family. And also today, our hearts are really heavy for our friends and uh, family over at Hepzibah Baptist Church. They're Pastor, Brother Larry Summerall, who's had a fantastic ministry serving the Lord there for eight or nine years, I guess now. Uh, he passed away uh, last week after a battle with COVID as well. So let's just pause right now and let's just pray together. God, there's so much uh, hurt and um, grief today. And we pray especially for Katrina, her family, that you would do what you do to your people, and that is give comfort in the midst of our grief and sorrow. We Pray also for Josh and the Eaton family for comfort. I think of Jason Rogers, also whose father passed away last week. Uh, God, for the people at Hepzibah Baptist Church today and for Brother Larry's family, uh, God, would you just be very near to that congregation and that family today. Pour your spirit out in a very special way. There's so many others, God, and I am not capable of recalling every name, but I am praying to a God who is. And not just recalling the names, but you know every detail. And I'm thankful that you care and that you hear our prayers. And we lay them now before you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're very aware of all that going on today. But I want to say this also uh, as it relates to COVID. And and I know you're tired of hearing about COVID. Um, We all are. But I am seeing a trend as it relates to believers who have gone through COVID, who've experienced that, varying degrees of severity. Um, They might have been very sick. They might have been hospitalized. Some even spent some time on a ventilator. But here's the trend that I'm seeing over and over again with God's people who've gone through that. As they're coming now on the recovery side of COVID, they are telling me how God has used that to change their lives. And, and, and that's part of this whole thing that I don't think we're talking enough about, right? I heard a man in our church pray this morning. We don't, we don't understand why, God, you've allowed this to come into our world, but maybe it's to turn people to you, right? And, and so I'm seeing that among God's people that there is this Result, I'm having conversations, and people are bearing witness that God, through that, has changed me. I, I, I'm a different person. It, it, it's like I'm more alive now than I think I've ever been before. Now, I remember through the years at Grace Life, I've heard a few people, because COVID's the C word now, but it was cancer. That was the C word, and we've sort of forgotten that. That's still a big deal, right? That hadn't gone away. And I've heard a few people through the years say, Pastor, cancer's the best thing that's ever happened to me. Because God used that to change my walk with him. God used that to change my relationship with him. I, I, I see him and I see the world and I see people and myself and Christ totally different than I, I used to. And so now I'm beginning to hear phrases like that come from people that have come through COVID. Who are beginning to say, I'm thankful for it because it was not a waste in my life but god used it and god is using it for example i was at the hospital the other day visiting with brian Mizell. brian's one of our church members and back there in our media ministry and spent a couple of weeks on a ventilator and you know it didn't look good but god touched our brother and he's healing him and he's raising him up and he's in a regular room and he's going through physical therapy and he texted me just before kickoff yesterday uh, that he had walked 40 steps yesterday you know so Uh, Praise the Lord for that. And I'm telling you, as I stood there by Brian's bed the other day talking to him, the Lord is all over that brother. He is so on fire and so full of the Holy Spirit. The way he has experienced the presence of God through all of this, and he was sharing with me that God is speaking to me about things in my life that God is desiring to change. And, and, And I said, Brian, it sounds to me like God has used COVID to sort of kill the old Brian and raise up a new Brian. And he said, yeah, I I think that's the case. And listen, I want to remind you here today because I know it's been a hard season and some of you it's been a hard life and some of you it's hard right now. But I just want to remind you this, even when we don't understand why in the world it's going on, why in the world anything that we're going through is going on, I just want to remind you this, God is undefeated. He never loses. He's never going to get pinned on the mat. Our God is never going to tap out. Our God always has another move. He always does. And today we're in Acts chapter 9. And when you get to Acts chapter 9, it looks like the church, which is now just really in its infancy stage, right? It looks like in Acts chapter 9 that the church is about to go on the vent. It looks like the life of the church is soon going to come to an end and it's going to be over. The future's not looking good. In fact, just earlier, one of their brightest and best deacons and young preachers had been dragged out into the streets by an angry and hateful mob where he was murdered there publicly. Now the Christians, they're beginning to scatter. They're trying to rescue themselves from all of this violence that's breaking out in Jerusalem. And think about that. They don't even have Zoom. They don't even have social media. What that means is you've got brothers and sisters in Christ who, who love each other. They've been worshiping together. They've been serving God alongside each other during this time. But now because of this, some of them have seen each other for the very last time. They'll never get to worship again together. They'll never get to serve the Lord again together. It's easy to forget, I think, sometimes when we read the book of Acts, these are real people. These are real places. This was a real moment in time. And these people are paying an incredibly high price because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For them, it was a dark time. It was a scary time. It was a hard time. But God in heaven is saying, stand still and watch this. I will not be pinned. I will not tap out. I remain undefeated, stand still and watch what I'm about to do. I have a move that's about to turn everything around. I just want to remind you today that if you're a believer, you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's nothing that's ever going to happen in your life that means your life has fallen apart. For those who follow Jesus, our life is always falling together. It may not appear that way, It may not make any sense to us, but according to the truth of God's word, He is always working things out for the good of those who love Him and who have been called according to His purpose. It's an amazing thing that we see God doing here in Scripture today. In Acts chapter 9, God is about to grab the scariest monster that was threatening to exterminate the church. And God is about to transform that monster into his chosen instrument to extend the church to all the nations of the entire world. Listen, I just want to say, in case you have forgotten this, there is no person that is so bad that God cannot save. There is no person so bad that God cannot touch and completely, totally, fully transform their life for his glory. And this man named Saul in Acts chapter 9 is perhaps the greatest example of that truth that God can take anybody, that nobody's too bad for God to change and for God to save. So let's talk about that today. Let's talk about this monster turned missionary. This monster turned missionary. We'll look at a number of things today. Here's the first thing I want you to see, is I want you to see Saul's credentials. Saul's credentials. First off, let's talk about where he was born. Saul was born and raised in a place called Tarsus. I'll show that to you right up here. Let's take a zoom in so we'll get our, our bearings here. We got that, fellas? There we go. I know some of you like maps, so I thought, let's get acquainted with where we are. And maybe week to week, we'll plot a few different places up here on the map. Tarsus is up there on the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea. That's where this man named Saul was born and spent at least the early years of his life. I went ahead and plotted also Jerusalem because that's where the church started. And we saw the last couple of weeks that it had extended into this place called Samaria, which is about 60 miles north of Jerusalem. And you may remember that God had called Philip to leave Samaria and go by the desert road down to Gaza where he met the Ethiopian. That means he would have circumvented Jerusalem on the eastern side the road less traveled to get to Gaza so that's sort of where we are today in the world with what's happening here so Tarsus was a favored city by the way of the Roman Empire you would have wanted to live there if you had lived during that time because they had to pay no taxes (laughs) no taxation for those people whatsoever it was a, a place that was rich in culture a place that was filled up with opportunities for higher education and learning. Saul and his family were by ethnicity fully Jewish, but they also enjoyed the perks and the privileges of being Roman citizens. And that was a pretty coveted prize, to not be Roman, to be considered a Roman citizen. So they're living in a pretty good place here. And it's not strange, by the way, that you would find Jews living in a place like Tarsus. Historians tell us that at that time there were probably six million Jewish people on the planet, but only about a million of them actually lived in Israel. They were all still dispersed and scattered, going back to the Assyrians and the Babylonians that we read about in the Old Testament. So Saul is a person that's well-educated. That's evident. He, Spoiler alert, he's going to write some letters that end up in our Bible, (laughs) And you can tell from reading those letters, he is very well educated. He knows Koine Greek, which was the common language throughout the Roman Empire of that time. But not only that, he was very well educated. He was a student of the Jewish Hebrew Scriptures, which is our Old Testament. His parents and probably the local synagogue, the local Jewish synagogue there in Tarsus had really laid an excellent foundation in Saul's life. But at some point, perhaps after he turned 13, he moves to Jerusalem to become a disciple under one of the most amazing rabbis at that time, Gamaliel. Everybody wanted their child to be in Gamaliel's school. Well, Saul had what it take to be in that school. So this is where he's formally educated in Judaism. And he takes the position there, ultimately, of Pharisee. He's a rising star and an expert in the law. Here's how he describes himself. Philippians chapter 3, verse 5. Saul, a.k.a. Paul, as he's writing this, says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. So that's a little bit of background about his credentials. If you're wondering why would I give you so much details about that, it's because we're going to be hanging out with this dude for months and months and months now as we continue our journey through the book of Acts. So that's his credentials. Secondly, I want you to see Saul's cruelty. His cruelty. The man's a monster here in Acts chapter 9. In Philippians 3, verse 6, he's continuing to speak in that text. And this is how he describes himself. He says, I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. You might recall from a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 7, this angry mob is dragging Stephen out to the street and they're stoning him and they're laying their coats at the feet of this same man, Saul. Look at verse 57 of Acts chapter 7. Acts 7.57 says, Then they put their hands over their ears. They began shouting, and they rushed at him, that's Stephen. And they dragged him out of the city, and they began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats, and they laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Chapter 8 of Acts continues, saying, Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers, except the apostles, were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Verse 2 says, Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning, but Saul, watch this, was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. Does that sound like anything you know of happening in Afghanistan today? A monster, a terrorist, going house to house. That's what we find this man named Saul doing here in Acts chapter 8. His cruelty continues into Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath. This is all the guy talked about. This, this was his life. From can to can. This is what he's about with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest, he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way that he found there. The way is what they were calling the church at that time, the believers at that time. And he wants to bring them, the Bible says, both men and women back to Jerusalem in chains. Galatians chapter 1 verse 13, he later says of himself this, You know what I was like. When I followed the Jewish religion, how I violently persecuted God's church. Notice what he says. I did my best to destroy it. This is the cruelty of this man named Saul. He was a monster. He's highly intelligent. Yes, well-educated, a religious expert. But he has one thing and one thing only on his mind. To bring the way the followers of Jesus, to bring them to an end, to crush Christianity. That's what he wants to do, to stop it in its tracks by any means necessary. That's what he wants to do, and that's what he's doing when we are in Acts chapter 9. He's going to Damascus, which is uh, 200 miles north of Jerusalem. It's going to take him eight or nine days maybe to get to Damascus. He's going to Damascus to gather up any followers of Jesus that he can find in that city, bring them back to Jerusalem where they can be punished. Little does Saul know at this point, as he starts out on this eight, nine day journey to Damascus, that God is about to flip the script. His life is about to be completely and totally and forever changed. Because not only is Saul not going to bring Christianity to an end, he is going to become the catalyst that God is going to use to extend Christianity into all the world. So that's Saul's credentials, Saul's cruelty. Now I want you to see number three, Saul's confrontation. Look at verse 3 of chapter 9. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone around him. By the way, this is 12 noon. It's the middle of the day. So it's not like it's dark and a flashlight comes on. Brightest moment of the day. And suddenly, from heaven, this light shining around him. Verse 4, he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I want you to notice that voice doesn't say, why are you persecuting the way? The voice doesn't say, why are you persecuting the church? The voice says, why are you persecuting me? The one thing here that I want to make sure that you see is this. Jesus is speaking here and he sees no daylight between himself and his people. He identifies himself with his church. Saul has not laid one single finger on Jesus, but as far as Jesus is concerned, every strike that Saul has made against the people of God has been against Jesus himself. Think about that, save people, for a minute. This is who you are. Think about that. Oh, devil, he's after you right now, but think about that. That's how Jesus sees you right now, this is called the doctrine of the union of Christ. We are united because of grace through faith in Jesus. We are one now with Jesus and one with his church. If you hold to a version of Christianity today that says, well, you can be a follower of Jesus, but you don't have to you don't have to be committed to his church. You can do the whole relationship with Jesus all by yourself. The church is just sort of an add-on. You don't really need that. Listen, you have got a a a untruthful, fraudulent version of what biblical Christianity is. You cannot walk with Jesus and walk out on his church, right? That's not how we see it as the church. That's how Jesus sees it as the head of the church. He says to Paul, you're messing with me. He identifies himself with his people Now, it'd be cool if Saul could be here today and sort of give us his story of what happened on the road that day. But we sort of have him later on in Acts chapter 26. Saul, who's now Paul at that point, he's standing before King Agrippa. And let's look at what he says. He gives a testimony of that day. So let's hear it from him. Acts chapter 26, verse 9. He says, I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could To oppose the very name of Jesus the Nazarene. And did, I did just that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priest, I caused many believers there to be sent to prison. And I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. If you were on trial for being a follower of Jesus, Saul would vote for you to die every single time. Verse 11, he says, Many times I had them punished in the synagogues. To get them to curse Jesus. Think of that. He would go into synagogues and torture these people to try to get them to recant their faith in Christ. He's cruel. He's a monster. He says, I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. He's a monster. But God so loved this monster that he gave his only son He goes on and he says, verse 12, One day I was on such a mission to Damascus, armed with the authority. Hey, somebody's beeping over here, and I have ADD, and this ain't going to go good if you don't stop that. (laughs) So thank you very much. That's why I bow my head and close my eyes when I pray, by the way, (laughs) because i got to focus. He says, verse 12, One day I was on such a mission to Damascus, armed with the authority and commission of the leading priest. And he says, About noon, Your Majesty, As I was on the road, a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shone down on me and my companions. We all fell down, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is useless. I love this. It's useless for you to fight against my will. This is God saying, I'm always going to win. It's useless that you think you're going to win this thing. It's useless, this mission you have of stopping the church. I've already said the gates of hell aren't going to stop the church. So Saul, who do you think you are? What a confrontation. The man who wants to bring Christianity to an end is now being confronted by the very one that all the Christians have been preaching about and proclaiming and serving and worshiping. All those Christians that Saul has been giving his life to, to chasing down and torturing and killing. Ironically, it's interesting, who was the last person, by the way, that saw the resurrected Jesus prior to this? Stephen. And who was standing there near Stephen as Stephen was getting a glimpse of the resurrected Jesus? Saul was. But he didn't see him. But in Acts chapter 9, his eyes are being opened. How ironic that the one who was ultimately perhaps even responsible for the death of Stephen is the very next person that gets to see the glory of the resurrected Jesus. His eyes are being opened now. That's a sheer act of the grace of God, by the way. Saul was nothing but a sinner. Just like me and you, there was nothing in us to curry favor with God. You don't you don't win the grace of God. You don't talk God into giving His grace to you. We're sinners. We're enemies of God. We're dead in our sin. Saul is nothing but a sinner. But God is the one who initiated this confrontation with Saul. God initiates every conversation with sinners. Nobody seeks after God. You didn't. I didn't. Sometimes I hear people say, "I found God." That's cute nobody finds God God finds us it's grace pure grace God always initiates contact with the sinner never the other way around so what have we said we've looked at the credentials of Saul the cruelty of Saul the confrontation of Saul number four let's see Saul's conversion Acts chapter 9 verse 5 he said who are you Lord ask and answer right who are you Lord Saul asks. Saul calls him Lord here. I think this is a recognition that this booming voice and this brilliant light is divinity, that it's none other than God himself. Saul is admitting that this is God. Almighty God has stopped him on his way to Damascus. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one that you're persecuting. And those Words from Jesus, the great I am. Don't you know they shook every molecule in Saul's body? Saul had been horribly, horribly wrong about everything that he was about. Saul knew the gospel message. He had heard Stephen preach it. He probably heard Peter preach it. How many... Believers in those synagogues had he heard declare the good news of Jesus Christ. God, very God, sinless, died on the cross, rose again, ascended into heaven. He knew the gospel message. And now he's confronted with not only the truth of that message, he's confronted with who that message is about. Jesus himself standing here before Saul. How foolish it would have been at this point. For Saul to say no. But in this moment, to see this grace, this mercy, this love, he must have been compelled. And I think it's at this point that Saul accepts the message of the gospel. He's born again. This is his conversion moment. Have you had a conversion moment? If you're not converted, you're not right with God you've never been converted, you have no hope of heaven today. Have you been converted? Have you had a conversion moment where God called you out because of your sin and He pointed you to His Son, the Lord Jesus? Have you had that moment that you turned from said sin and you trusted Jesus to make you right with God? We've seen Saul's credentials, his cruelty, his confrontation, his conversion. I want you to see, fifthly, Saul's commission. His commission, God's got a call on his life now. Acts chapter 26, verse 16, Saul's still giving his testimony. And he's telling that story, and he says, now get to your feet. This is what Jesus says to him, now get to your feet, Saul. For I have appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and witness. I am turning you from a monster into a missionary. I know it sounds crazy, but that's what I'm doing, Saul. I do crazy things. That's who I am. He says, tell people that you've seen me and tell them what I will show you in the future. And I will rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. Saul, just so you know, I'm calling you to this Monster to missionary, but it also means you're no longer the hunter, you're now going to be the hunted. They're going to want to kill you now. Just like you've been trying to kill the people who follow me. God says to him, yes, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. I know you're a Jew, but I'm going to do something incredible through you. You're going to be my chosen servant, my missionary, the apostle, if you will, to the Gentiles, to the nations of the earth. Heads up, you and I are sitting here today because God called this monster to be a missionary. I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. So this is Paul's commission. It's to Gentile places. It's to... Gentile people, which is what the rest of the book of Acts, the bulk, far and away, the bulk of the rest of the book of Acts, that's what it's all about, is how the gospel gets to people like me and you. People from all over the world, every tongue and race and tribe and nation. And because of what's happening in Saul's life here in Scripture today, that's still happening today. The gospel's still going all over the world today. And of all the people that God could have chosen to start this global effort... Chose a monster. He chose Saul. God ran to the very one that everybody else was running away from. Isn't that good? God grabbed the meanest and the scariest monster. And he turned him into a missionary. For the nations. You say, Pastor Joel, what were you going to do with the basketball? Well, I was going to let the kids just hand it to each other while I told them the story that one time I went to watch a little kid from our church play basketball. and He wasn't very good at it, but he was enthusiastic. And that's what you want, right? Really, when kids are playing basketball. And at one point, he gets the basketball, and everybody's cheering because he's never rang a goal before. And he takes off running down the court, and everybody, their cheers start turning from cheering to no, no, no. He throws up a shot, and it goes in the opponent's goal. Bless his heart, right? Well, bless Satan's heart. Sometimes he steals our ball, and he takes the shot, and he thinks he has scored one for his team, but he is always scoring one for God. God always turns it around for his glory and for our good. So God is taking the meanest, scariest monster here and he's transforming him into the image of Jesus and into a world changing missionary for the kingdom of God but I need to tell you this today being transformed by God comes with a price not just for monsters but for every man and for every woman process of being transformed by God doesn't come easy and that's why I want you to see the last thing I want you to see here today and that's Saul's crushing is crushing back to Acts 9 God says now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do and the men with Saul stood speechless for they heard the sound of someone's voice but they saw no one Saul picked himself up off the ground watch this But when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. And he remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Saul gets to Damascus, but not the way he thought he would get to Damascus. He thought he would show up large and in charge. But under God's loving and crushing work, he shows up weak, and blind, and helpless. He thought he would show up with orders in hand. This is what you must do. But instead, under the crushing, loving hands of God, he is the one now who has been ordered by God himself. He thought, on that journey, he was fully in control of everything. Sound familiar? Is this not why we become so devastated when those unexpected things happen in our life? Because we had just convinced ourselves, I'm in control of this journey. See, this is the beginning, just the beginning of God crushing Saul. He said, I don't understand why God's doing that. Why, why, would, why, would, why does God want to crush his people like that? God crushes those he loves to squeeze out of them everything that is not of God. So that only what is is what remains. So that we might be useful to him. And to his kingdom for his glory and also for our joy. A.W. Tozier said this. He said, The devil, things and people being what they are, it's necessary for God to use the hammer, the file, and the furnace in his holy work of preparing a saint for true sainthood. And then he says, This it is doubtful. Whether God will bless a man greatly until He has hurt him deeply. You remember in the Old Testament, there's a story of a man by the name of Jacob. He he kind of always thought he was in control, and he had this uncanny ability to sort of manipulate and deceive and keep everything sort of under his control. But one night, he finds himself wrestling with God. And I remind you, God never taps out. And that night as he wrestles with God, God at one moment intentionally injures, crushes, if you will, one of Jacob's hips. And from that time on, Jacob walked with a limp. With every step, a constant reminder I am not God. I am not in control. We're going to learn later that Saul has some type of affliction that he refers to as a thorn in the flesh. Nobody for sure knows what that is, but, but maybe it started, possible. Maybe it started there that noonday on the road to Damascus. Because we know he struggled with his eyesight. Maybe that, just maybe, don't know. Hypothetically, theoretically, maybe that issue began with his eyes on this day on the road to Damascus. Just like God left Jacob with a limp, maybe God left Saul with a squint. But either way, both of these men experienced the painful, crushing, loving purposeful work of God in their lives God changed Jacob's name to Israel and he was a patriarch of the Jewish people God changed Saul's name to Paul and called him to be a missionary to the Gentile people both Jacob and Paul had their God-given scars. Anybody here today got any scars? Anybody? Anybody besides me? Let me tell you something about your scars today. Your God-given scars annoy Satan. Because they are proof That there was a moment in your life that he thought you were done for, but God said, no. I don't quit. I don't stop. I don't tap out. I always have another move. Your scars are proof of the faithfulness and the power and the presence and the mercy and the grace and the crushing, purposeful, loving work of God in your life. So all you former COVID patients dragging around your oxygen tanks today, you are annoying to Satan because he might have thought you were done for, but God said no. All you who are depressed, maybe even suicidal, Maybe struggling with addiction, broken, confused, abandoned. All you cheaters, and liars, and quitters, and cowards. Satan may think that you're done, but God gets the last word. Listen, if you feel like you're being crushed today, and I know a lot of you do, don't despair. Don't despair. If you're a born-again child of God today, you can rest assured that what feels like crushing to you are the gracious and kind and purposeful and sovereign hands of your Heavenly Father squeezing you. Because he loves you. And he wants your joy to be full. For that to happen, he's got to remove everything from you that's not of him. Maybe that's what he's doing in your life today. Not to crush you into defeat, but to deliver you into victory. To mold you into the version of yourself that's going to bring the most glory to him. So you get the most joy from him. If you're in the furnace today. Or under the hammer today. That means God loves you. And it means he is not finished with you yet. The best. May yet still be to come. You got to decide today, am I going to quit? Or am I going to trust God? I promise you, if He can turn COVID into a catalyst to deepen somebody's relationship with Him, if He can take a monster. And turn him into the greatest missionary the world has ever known. Why would you think for a moment that he can't use you? Why would you think for a moment that he doesn't love you enough to put his hands around your life? There is nothing about who you are or what you have done or what you have going on that can stop him from transforming your life today. Nothing. You might have been the person that everybody's ran from, not God. He does not blink in the presence of the vilest of sinners. I know many of you today are tired and you're weary and afraid. But look, that thing that might just be the biggest monster in your life today, Maybe be about to be used by God to be the greatest instrument that God's going to use to change your life. That's what He does. and He does it for His glory and for our good. Let's pray. Are you being pursued today by a monster of some sort? that's robbing you your family of the joy of the Lord peace in your life does it seem today that you are in a furnace and it's just getting hotter and hotter by the minute Does it seem today that you have been placed on an anvil and you are being hammered and hammered and hammered day after day? If you're a child of God, then never forget Jesus sees no separation between you and him, he's there. He is with you in the face of the monster in the heat of the fire under the pressure of the hammering he is there with his presence and with his unstoppable purpose for your life our job Our job is this to trust him. To trust that somehow, ultimately, some way, he will transform every battle into a blessing. You say, Pastor, I hear what you're saying. I want to believe that. I want to believe that this monster, this furnace, this hammering in my life, this battle that I'm in, I want to believe. I want to believe that God is sovereign in it and through it and over it. I want to believe that there are blessings at the end of this because God is for me and not against me. Because I am one with Christ. And not only did Jesus through what He did at the cross, take away my sin, but He also at the same time guaranteed me every blessing of God that was due Him for His perfect life. I believe that, Pastor, but I'm just telling you today, Pastor, I'm having a real struggle believing that. Like I got it in my head, but that six inches down to my heart is where it's just kind of a lot of potholes and speed bumps. Pastor, would you just pray for me today that God would help my my unbelief. that's you today, I'd love to pray for you. Just lift your hand. Say, Pastor, that's me. I'm in the furnace. I'm in the battle. I'm on the anvil. Amen. There's monsters, Pastor. And I want to believe. I want to believe that God is not done. I want to believe in His transforming power. God, we do believe. Help our unbelief. Give us grace to trust you more. God, help us to not be afraid of the monsters or the flames or the hammer or the battles. But to have our eyes on you, Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, the one who began a good work, who will complete that work, give us grace to trust you more that you will turn battles into blessings for your namesake. pray that in the mighty name of Jesus. I want to invite you to stand as we worship the Lord and as we respond to what God is saying out of his word today.